1: That is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man.
0: And as we approach the 2016 election, the manipulation of fear, primarily, but not exclusively, by Republicans, has brought that fear to a near fever pitch. We feel deeply threatened by ISIS, but are not about to put our boots on the ground. Somebody else, all the presidential contenders and all of Washington's top brains repeatedly suggest somebody else should put their feet on the embattled, contested ground of Syria and Iraq. Democrat and Republican were all determined to crush ISIS, of course, but we want others to do it for us. According to our guest today, Peter Van Buren, Quote, imagining the wealthy Arab nations as a significant future anti-ISIS force is absurd. In fact, Sunni terror groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda have in part been funded by states like Saudi Arabia, or at least rich supporters living in them, end quote. The Republican candidates for president have turned their focus on ginning up fear and talk of terror to a fever pitch to the exclusion of real national economic security issues. I was at the uh, New Hampshire Democratic debate, and while Hillary wanted the U.S. to act unilaterally, the two others, Bernie and O'Malley, basically sang from the same hymnal. The song was, someone else should really do it, not us. Get the rich Arab states to step up to the plate and defeat ISIS. But maybe in truth, they just don't see it as their fight. Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Peter Van Buren, who has an article at Tom Dispatch titled, Washington to Whomever, Please Fight the Islamic State for Us. Why Gulf States, the Kurds, the Turks, the Sunnis, and the Shia won't fight America's war. You may recall it was Peter Van Buren who blew the whistle on State Department waste and mismanagement during the Iraqi reconstruction. Uh, He wrote, We Meant Well, How I Helped Lose the Battle for Hearts and Minds of the Iraqi People. His latest book, Ghosts of Tom Jode, A Story of the 99%. His next work will be a novel, Hooper's War. Peter uh, Van Buren, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive today.
1: It's my pleasure, Bert. I'm very much in favor of keeping democracy alive.
0: Yeah, really. What a concept, you know? Uh, (laughs) Well, at that debate uh, in in New Hampshire, the Democrat presidential debate, while they all talked of the need to crush the ISIS terrorists, uh, while you say getting America off the hook, it was only Hillary Clinton that called for the U.S. to provide weapons to Syrian moderates who would lead the effort by fighting both ISIS and the Assad government at the same time. Kind of nuts to me, in my opinion. She also called for a no-fly zone, despite the fact that ISIS has not one airplane. Does she know something that the rest of us do not know, or is this at odds with reality in the region?
1: Well, she does know something the rest of us don't know. The problem is is that what she knows is how gullible the American people are to being handed... False narratives. I mean, this is arguably a, a straw man type situation where she proposes solutions that are pointless to enact or impossible to enact. The, the uh, Syrian uh, moderate rebels, so to speak, have yet to be located, right. um, never mind uh, armed. So I think Hillary does know something, but it's not necessarily good news <laughs> for us.
0: And the the presidential uh, wannabes on the Republican sides, their TV ads focus almost exclusively on defeating ISIS, avoiding any and all talk of actual issues affecting America's economic injustices. What about the Republican contenders? Are they merely whipping up self-serving fear, or does any of their talk make sense in terms of defeating ISIS, the Republican candidates?
1: Well, of course, it it doesn't make sense. They're proposing simply uh, an escalation uh, of what we've been doing, as is Hillary. Um, an escalation of what the United States has been doing for the last 14 and a half years mm-hmm. since nine eleven against ISIS, against uh, Al-Qaeda, against uh, all our enemies real and imagined. Mm-hmm. And the idea is, is to ignore the realities, the geopolitical realities of where uh, borders are drawn in the Middle East, to ignore the very powerful influence of uh, Islam that sweeps through the region, and simply focus on blowing things up. Um, mm-hmm. There's been a 14 and a half year beta test on, on that idea. Mm-hmm. It has not worked out well, um, and yet that's all these folks can propose. And a bloodthirsty American uh, population seems to be uh, soaking it up.
0: And I must say, to his credit, Bernie Sanders talked about how much you know how easy it is to topple governments. And he cited a number of examples of disasters that followed, such as the toppling of Mossadegh in uh, 1954, the toppling Mm -hmm. of Allende in 1973. You know, they're all for that, but actually doing something about it, you know, that vacuum that's got created. I mean, look at Libya. It's a total, complete chaos there. It's disaster. Uh, And it it just doesn't work. What about the the, the Pentagon itself? You know, the, the experts in Taking on the bad guys, at least militarily, you write that, quote, they may all mean well, but their plans are guaranteed to fail. what What have our military leaders, aside from the politics, what have our military leaders call for as a way forward? and And why do you say their plans are destined to fail?
1: There's a number of things that go on inside the military in these kinds of uh, situations. And the sad thing is, is that there's an awful lot of precedent, particularly in the, the Vietnam War. The military has, first of all, has a uh, history of telling the political leaders roughly what they want to hear. Um, they may try to cover themselves a little by shading it, but essentially, if the White House wants to hear about uh, body counts in Vietnam, then they'll report uh, healthy body counts in Vietnam. If the White House wants to hear that its strategy is albeit very slowly, succeeding in Iraq and Syria, then, then that's going to be what gets reported up the chain. Let's not forget a uh, recent New York Times article explaining how the Pentagon's own inspector general is looking into uh, allegations that the intelligence was uh, skewed, purposely skewed, as it went up the line to the White House. The other thing, of course, the military wants to do is it always wants to, to win, And so it will never send up a message uh, on its own that things are not going very well. It's simply a matter of a tweak in the strategy, more soldiers, more bombs, whatever. Lastly, and this is in line with uh, the broader assault on on democracy and and the people's nation that we're seeing across the board, and that is the military exists to be the military, to further its own existence. And wars are a terrific way for the military to continue to justify its ever-growing budgets, to justify the martial uh, tone that that continues through society, and to make sure that there will be a a Pentagon and a large military, as well as intelligence, presence in in Washington uh, for the bulk of uh, the days of the Republic. Here,
0: You're not saying that a governmental bureaucracy is is self-serving to keep itself in business. No, <laughs> I,
1: th- I think the, the technical term is self licking ice cream cone. But um, you know, I, I don't know how many of your listeners uh, studied political science. But yeah, of course, of course. Um, going back to the, the second part of your question, and that is um, why it's de- this is all destined to fail. Yeah, that is uh, something that we'll we'll want to uh, I certainly want to explore with you over the the bulk of our time together. But the short answer is. From the American perspective, it will certainly fail uh, on a very high level because we are trying to, first of all, bomb away uh, an idea, which is this, this sweeping sense of, of Islamic nationalism, if you will, across the Middle East. And the second is that the United States is trying to use its military to counter the obvious wave of, of history that we are uh, watching happen in, in the middle east the changing of the system that was established at the end of world war one uh... and the realignment of power structures in the middle east that is something that's literally been brewing since nineteen seventeen but now appears to be uh, ready to to bubble over the top It's uh, also the question Yeah, i'm sorry no go ahead There's also the question of exactly who's going to be fighting on our behalf and and right. how that idea even came into being but um, that's, we'll go through that, I suspect, in, yes. in a little more detail.
0: If you just tuned into Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Peter Van Buren, who knows a bit about, uh, oh, the State Department and the uh, <laughs> functioning of uh, our, our, or non-functioning of our, our State Department and, and military and what uh, they're really up to. We're talking about, uh, can we get others to do our fighting for us? You know, clearly ISIS is targeting we in the West. Uh, There's no question about that. But the wealthy Arab states, do they see ISIS as the same sort of threat to them that we do? If not, why not? It's almost
1: counterintuitive. You know, we're worried about ISIS crossing oceans uh, to to attack us. Right. Right. Whereas the the Gulf, the uh, countries in the Middle East, of course, ISIS is essentially uh, quite literally a bus ride uh, from their capitals. So you would think that the sense of alarm that dominates the American psyche right now would be amplified uh, across the Middle East. They'd have the uh, the panic set at eleven, and that's not really what you see. There's certainly concern, um, but it's it's not at the the levels. So we got to drill into a little bit about why that is, and I suspect that the fears in in the Middle East, on a very broad level, are much more about revolt among their own people, um, the creation of a theocracy in places like Saudi Arabia that have been ruled essentially by a a single-family dictatorship for for many, many decades. I suspect the feeling is more about ISIS, the ideas that ISIS represents, than, than the odd firebombing or, 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 or mass, mass shooting. The other thing that is keeping many of the countries, particularly the Sunni Gulf nations like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, uh, Bahrain, whatever, um, out of the, the intense fear category is that in most cases they are supporting uh, ISIS. They are funneling funding into ISIS. They are politically supporting ISIS, um, and they feel that they have bought themselves a a modicum of protection, at least a short-term version, with the understanding that countries like Saudi Arabia are actually supporting an idea and a force against their own best wishes. But, you know, short-term thinking is not necessarily limited to to the United States when you get into politics.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's for sure. Interesting, very interesting that that some of those nations... What would be, like, for example, as you mentioned, Kuwait and Bahrain, uh, Qatar, places like that, why would they sort of quietly be, you know, supporting ISIS? That, that seems bizarre.
1: The quietness is, is very much a factor of the American uh, mainstream media. Any person who wants to, to dig into it uh, even a little bit will find that the Sunni Gulf states' support for ISIS is not particularly uh, covert. The reason, of course, that they support ISIS is they're afraid of ISIS. You've got a, a force that represents uh, a trend of history that is an extreme threat to the monarchies and the, we'll call them dictators, uh, that, that actually run those Gulf countries. Um, belief, if, if I had to sort of put words into the, the, the leaders' mouths, particularly the Saudis, is um, you've got to keep your enemies close. Um, right. In addition, uh, I suspect mm-hmm. there's a sense of if they pay ISIS, if they contribute to ISIS, they may be buying themselves a, a little bit of insurance, if you will. Mm. Um, at least in the near term, if ISIS is well-paid and fighting in iraq and syria then they're not fighting someplace else particularly closer to uh, saudi arabia the other thing that mm. that america fails and and in fact is illustrated very clearly by the gulf nations' support for isis is how people in that region see foreign policy and and geopolitics america tends to see the world as kind of a, a chess game you know we've got our side they've got their side it's black versus white, it's, it's the, the forces of good, the exceptional nation versus the barbaric terrorists, and so forth. Um, we're very familiar with that. I think countries in the Middle East see it all as much, much, much more complex. Uh, alliances don't need to be black and white. In fact, most of them are, are, are different shades of gray. They are malleable. They can form up uh, for a short period of time for a specific goal, and then they can melt away um, or morph into something else. And so I suspect those factors altogether are contributing to the Gulf states uh, helping to fund ISIS.
0: And the the subtopic of the First World War keeps coming up, and it will keep coming up, at least through this conversation. And as you're describing, you know, we have our black and white chessboard that was forced on the region after the First World War, uh, you know, creating nation-states that look like nation-states to us, but didn't really fit with reality on the ground back then and it seems to me that in many ways the the difficulties that uh the end of the first world war stirred up in the old ottoman empire absolutely continue to this day those dynamics are still at work today i don't know what we can do about that but it seems to i mean what are your thoughts on that
1: Well, what we can do about it is very little. What it's doing about itself is being played out in real time. At the risk of talking down to to the many of your listeners that know this history better than I do, and and at the risk of oversimplifying it for people who are maybe still uh, trying to learn it, it's probably worth taking a quick uh, zip through the last uh, 90-some years of of Middle Eastern history. Once upon a time, um, a lot of this part of the world was either sort of empty desert, People hadn't really found out that oil was all there or started extracting it. And a lot of the significant areas were ruled by the Ottoman Empire, uh, with parts of which we now call Turkey today. But during uh, the early part of the 20th century, actually stretched across Iraq, Syria, and a lot of other areas. The Ottomans got their uh, hat handed to them at the end of World War I, and the british and the french the, the dominant powers uh, of the day decided to divide up the, the middle east into their own spheres of influence mm-hmm. and this was uh, worked neat. out it, w- it was very handy for them i mean they did the same really for for uh, africa um and uh, of course uh, europe itself and so the french and the british kind of sat down and said well if we take this what do you want and the french said well we'll have this over here and and uh, We'll cede you that little bit over there in return. and return, and this was all kind of worked out among gentlemen, as as things were wont to do back in the in those days. Right. And it was formalized through uh, an agreement and a series of agreements. Actually, uh, we know the one Sykes-Picot as as the, uh, the the primary one. That's the one that really made the history books. But there were a lot of sub agreements, and the Middle East was divided up as the French and British wanted to. However, what they didn't Pay any attention to were that the lines they drew on the map were oftentimes, if not exclusively, at variance with the ground reality.
0: Yeah.
1: That part of the Middle East was, and still is today, divided in all sorts of crisscrossing ways. There are tribal alliances, there are strategic alliances, there are certainly uh... religious uh, organizations that uh, go on uh, there we know the sunni shia as as uh, the most predominant um and there are ethnic uh, divisions uh, certainly uh, the kurds do not see themselves as right. part of these arab states and the turks don't see themselves that way so the point is the lines on the map and the lines on the ground if if you will didn't match up um they were reinforced uh, in part initially by the french and the british themselves they came to be enforced by a series of uh, single ruler governments some of which came to be aggressively supported by the united states yes. uh, for our own strategic reasons primarily oil um, and they kind of lasted as long as that that structure was in place to hold back uh, the waters think of it as as a dam holding back the tides of history if i can Jumble enough metaphors into a single sentence for you. Um, We pulled out the most significant brick in the wall in 2003, and that was Saddam. Um, We can all agree he was an evil bastard, but he strategically held together a very large land area with very disparate people and religions. Um, Once you pull that out, it's kind of like Jenga. You know, it all starts to fall, and there's not much you're going to do about it other than watch it fall. Um, Hmm. We never thought about that in 2003, but uh, I suspect some people are thinking more about it today
0: well as i've said too many times the one thing i've learned from history is that we never learn from history now what what could we all right this is very neatly summed up there and i think it's it's very clearly painted most i think the reality of that is something that is i mean obviously not in the mainstream media people don't get how all that plays into today what could the western powers do about that today i i, I can't imagine you have thoughts on that
1: I do. And in fact, uh, this is the uh, the next article that I'm working on for Tom Dispatch. And uh, hopefully uh, your listeners will be able to take a look at it uh, uh, early in the new year. Uh, this is assuming that, you know, ISIS is not defeated uh, between now and, yeah, and then through some other be. means. But, you know, I'm pretty confident uh, I'll make my deadline. <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> the, the theme of the article <clears throat> is going to be that whether we like it or not, whether we want to do it or not, this is an inevitable process that we are seeing unfolding in the Middle East, this resorting of, of borders, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's nothing in the end of the day we can do about it. We can pour in enough money and and, and men and, and weapons to keep holding it off, um, and it'll be kind of a push between this this force of history and and this military force that the United States is is using. Um, And it will go back and forth for a while if that's the path we continue. But you just can't stop something that is, in fact, inevitable. And we're seeing now the redrawing of the Middle East. Um, I say borders, but in fact many of these, uh, I'd prefer the term statelets, uh, many mm-hmm. of these statelets are, are going to be kind of amorphous. There's not going to be mm-hmm. sort of an ISIS, uh, you know, customs and immigration booth that, you know somewhere out in the uh, the western uh, mm-hmm. Iraqi desert or something like that. They're not going to issue stamps and feed uh, and, and field an Olympic team, but they are going to exist and, and they are going to be a, an entity. Um, and there's not much we can do about it. The United States really has two unpleasant, uh, at least to our, our politicians, uh, options. And it doesn't matter what we do, because it's going to happen anyway, but what we can do to sort of make it better, the least worst, would mm-hmm. be one of, uh, of two things. Um, and this depends, I guess, as much on your, your politics as any kind of strategic thinking. The first would be simply go home. Um, Rand Paul has been the, the most mm-hmm. outspoken proponent of that. Yeah. We, this doesn't work. It isn't working it's distracting us from very important things it's chewing through our money and our youth it's time to cut our losses sometimes you walk away from the table losing a little so you don't lose more let's just pack up and and, and go home the the oil has become less important to us and the oil mm-hmm. is still going to be there whether isis controls it or the iranians control it or or wbur controls it it still has to be sold on the open market to somebody you can't eat it um, the second strategy, if you will, would be to try to use America's extraordinary power, economic, military, uh, and so forth, um, to try to manage the inevitable process, to try to bring it to a softer landing than it will come to on, on its own. Um, that may involve some type of demilitarized of, of areas, it may involve some kind of forcible separation. It may involve the American military sort of putting itself in between different groups uh, to keep them from from killing each other long enough that something might be worked out. There's obviously some dubious uh, thoughts in there, but in practical terms of saying, well, what can we do? I'm not sure I can think of too many more options than than the two I've uh, thrown out there
0: boy it's 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 hard i'm sure for many people i mean isis yeah they're not nice guys i mean you know slowly cutting off people's heads that's really i mean saudi arabia cuts off people's heads with great regularity our our buddies there in saudi arabia but they're not nice guys so you know, they, they talk about a caliphate, and that's been going on for a very, very long time. Uh, maybe you can even, you know, define what they mean by a caliphate, and you know, it goes back hundreds of years, and it may go forward. What what might that look like, and is that what we're talking about just it as being inevitable? Something a caliphate?
1: Well, for, first of all, we have to be clear that the United States allows coexists with, tolerates, pick your pick your favorite uh, word, um, a number of really miserable, nasty uh, organizations around the world. Um, some of them we work very closely with when it's convenient for us. Others we just sort of tolerate. Um, terror groups in one form or another are not anything particularly new. Um, and evil governments, uh, there's plenty of them, uh, pick your favorite country in Africa, pick North Korea, whatever. There's no shortage of those things. And so adding uh, another one in the Middle East is not something anyone should be happy about, but it's not like it's presenting us with a situation unique in, in America's uh, uh, history. The caliphate is a word that comes out of uh, the old uh, Muslim conquest uh, that stretched across northern Africa and actually reached in, into Spain, and it refers, of course, to this theocratic uh, government, theocratic empire, I guess, um, that has turned into a code word for Americans to to literally poop their pants, if I can say that on the radio, yes. <laughs> um, in, in fear. It's a trigger word. It's I, I don't think anybody serious about understanding these issues, seriously thinks that ISIS is going to establish a a formal government that crosses through massive swaths of of the Middle East or anything like that. Its support tends to be very limited to to Sunnis, um, particularly the Sunnis in Iraq who need some protection and are trying to figure out how they're going to push back against the Shias, and, and certainly some groups within Syria itself. That does not imply a significant strategic challenge to the United States. Most of the terrorism that seems to be ISIS-related is being done by people who live in the United States, uh, who have lived here for a number of years, and in many cases are American citizens. There's a uh, which-came-first question that, that is very prudent, and that is, whether what we're doing in the Middle East is inspiring these people to become uh, terrorists, radicalized, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you've got to ask that question. ISIS has existed since uh, 2006-ish. Al-Qaeda certainly in one form or another since the, whatever, 80s. Um, but it's only fairly recently that we're seeing these American citizens uh take up uh, violence uh, against us. Mm-hmm. It's also important to keep perspective on this. Um, with My heart goes out, of course, to, to the victims and their families uh, in San Bernardino, sure. but being a rational thinker, we have to remember it was 14 people. Um, that does not cause us to, to realign our whole worldview. It shouldn't cause us to realign our own worldview. Um, Everybody knows that the statistics you're more likely in America to be killed by lightning than by a terror accident. Um, Guns, uh, uncontrolled guns, kill more people than terrorism by a factor of of who knows how many. You know, all those kinds of rational thinking. Even, and and I'm sorry to say this, but even looking back at at the tragedy of 9-11, we have sent more than twice that many Americans to their deaths in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan, Yes. and continue to do so. I mean, and, sorry, six Americans were killed just the other day in Afghanistan. And so you've got to keep a perspective on this, though obviously politicians find it uh, very uh, prudent and, and very uh, useful, enriching yeah. to, uh, to keep the opposite. So fine, the bottom line is uh, an ISIS that exists in some part of the Middle East uh, is not a geopolitical threat to the United States. It's not even particularly much of a, uh, a threat to us here in in, in the homeland.
0: And, uh, you know, playing devil's advocate a bit, there were those back in, say, 1938 uh, who argued that, well, just, you know, when, when Hitler took uh, the Sudetenland, uh, just, you know, let him, let him have his territory. Let's, you know, mm-hmm. let him be in his area and he won't bother us. Uh what about that argument? I mean obviously that didn't work real well.
1: It didn't work real well and here's the but. <laughs> um first of all, uh Hitler represented a nation state that was with with, a, with an existing uh political structure a, and more importantly, a modern economy with weapons that were at least initially superior to anything that the uh, mm. other side had the other side was was a completely disorganized mess the french weren't talking to the british the americans were were uh, in an extreme period of isolation yes the other thing to keep in mind and again it's easy to sort of fall back and say how many people lost their lives in that in the terrible war but it took 4 years and hitler was defeated yeah we've been banging away at so-called terrorism uh, for over 14 years. Um, So I I don't mean in any way to belittle what happened in World War II, but if we want to be strategic thinkers as as opposed to emotional reactors, Mm. these lessons of history are are in fact extremely important and need to be given the respect that they deserve and not simply brushed off uh, in an emotional uh, hissy fear uh that isis is under my bed right now oh my god isis is under my bed um
0: well when fdr uh, talked about the only thing we have to fear is fear itself i believe this is exactly what he was talking about i mean you look at the ads on tv for virtually all the republican candidates fear 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 and fox tv it's all about fear fear sells and what does it it gain uh I'm not really sure how much it gains. We're talking on keeping democracy alive. Bert Cohen here, our guest today. Peter Van Buren, uh, who has written about... uh, And we're talking about why uh, the Gulf states, the Kurds, the Turks, the Sunnis, and the Shia won't fight America's war. It was Peter Van Buren who blew the whistle on State Department waste and mismanagement during Iraqi construction. So the Gulf states do not see ISIS as the same sort of threat as we do. I- I'm I'm wondering if uh, perhaps Saudi Arabia, for example, may be interested in saving its military in case they have to use it against their own citizens.
1: Well, that certainly makes uh, a lot of sense as well, and something that I didn't uh, consider in the article. It's it's the Internet. I can go back and change things. Yeah. So. <laughs> Um, Bert, you'll be making an uncredited uh, appearance in my my article. (laughs) Um, So sure, that's certainly a factor. The Saudi military, uh, like the other militaries in that area, are not particularly large uh, entities like we think of, you know, in the United States. And the Saudi military, such as it is, is in fact uh, very occupied right now in in blowing Yemen uh, apart. So it is possible that they would not want to get involved too much in fighting in Iraq and Syria. Um, to keep their their troops in in reserve for either uh, homeland defense, if you will, uh, riot control, whatever. Um, The other thing we need to keep in mind is that it's not entirely clear that all the other parties in the region would welcome uh, a Saudi uh, incursion into Iraq or or, or Syria or any other incursion by an Arab country. Um, I don't think they're particularly happy about the Americans being there, but again if if there's anything that those countries don't trust, it's each other uh, and so <laughs> the idea of the United States sort of announcing that we want an Arab coalition to get involved in all this sort of ignores the fact that the Arabs have a say in, in this um, both the bombers and the, and the bombies uh, i guess um but kind of touring around the region sure. you, you can you come to the same conclusion though the, though the the sort of details are different, none of the players seem to have a particularly good reason to fight on behalf of America's goals. We have a sad, long tradition of hoping that other people will fight our wars for us um, after we get sort of tired of them or realize we've sort of gotten into something or looking for a way out. Um, And it turns out that, surprisingly, not everybody wants to sacrifice their their sons and, and daughters for our goals. Uh, they are willing, in many cases, to take advantage of our ignorance of this uh, for their own advantage. Um, a perfect example, of course, uh, and it ties directly into the events uh, in the Middle East today, uh, was Afghanistan in the 1980s. Um, Americans uh, recruited uh, radical Islamists, if you will, including mm-hmm. uh, Osama bin Laden and Zakali yes. and, and uh, Sheikh Khalid Mohammed. Um, trained them, equipped them. Uh, gave them uh, the resources and money they needed, including shoulder-to-air missiles, so that they could go out and fight the Russians. Um, that was our goal, was yeah. having them fight the Russians. Their goal yeah. sort of morphed, <laughs> however, into building this organization we now refer to as al-Qaeda, uh, al, al- Qaeda. Mm-hmm. Um, the same things going on, for example, in, in in the sense that they've got their own goals, which is is things with the Kurds. You know, yes. if you can remember back to uh, math class. Uh, we, we studied this thing called Venn diagrams. Oh yes, of course. Two two circles, yep. and uh, when they overlap, there's right. a little shaded area where they overlap. Right. Um, and that's probably the best way to look at this. The the Kurds, for example. Uh, want to have uh, an independent Kurdistan, yes. which in this case involves them killing the ISIS people who are in that area. And the United States wants someone to kill ISIS. And so that's where the overlap is, the kill ISIS part. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, when ISIS is sort of chased out of some of those areas, the Kurds then retreat into the non-shaded part of the Venn diagram, hmm. their their part. And it's like, yeah, we got what we wanted, we're done. Um and you can look at the same thing uh, with, for example, the the Turks, um, who the United States wants to enlist in, in this fight. There are places where the Turks want to kill uh, ISIS, um, particularly the the north uh, eastern part of of, uh, of Syria. Um, but there are lots of places where the Turks don't want to kill ISIS because they want them as a as a uh, buffer mm. against. Uh, Kurdish independence. So again, there are these Venn diagrams. um, When you start to draw them all out for the Turks, the Kurds, the Russians, the Iranians, the Iraqis, and and so forth, it's a pretty complicated picture. And anyone in the American government who thinks they can manage that, manipulate that, and even truly understand it, I think is, is really fooling themselves.
0: Wow. And let's let's take a look at the Kurds. I mean, as, as you say, there's a lot of different uh, governments and powers in the region. Uh, Saudi Arabia, obviously one, and they're uh, pretty tied up in, in Yemen fighting Iran. But the Kurds, you know, Americans have really been impressed. Kurds look like, like heroes in their fight against ISIS. They're motivated because they want another country. And they're uh relation with uh, the nation state where they mostly exist in Turkey. Uh, the Turkish government, I, my impression is, you know people people wonder, you know, where Turkey is with regard to to ISIS, why don't they fight ISIS more? My impression is they're keeping, ISIS alive by buying their oil the son of Erdogan has been their allegations that he is personally profiting tremendously by buying cheap ISIS oil and selling it at a a big profit so what what is the, the Kurds here they have as you said their own agenda how did the 2003 US invasion of Iraq affect the Kurds and what they might be doing these days.
1: Iraq, uh, Saddam Hussein in, in the pre-invasion days uh, kept the Kurds uh, in line, um, oftentimes violently, during the 1980s with the uh, assistance of the United States, who supplied uh, Saddam with uh, intelligence and, and some say uh, even the uh, chemical weapons that he used uh, against the Kurds uh, in his country. So that was kind of convenient for Turkey. Um, they didn't have to worry much about Kurdish nationalism mm-hmm. because Saddam had it uh, nicely bottled up. They had uh, Kurdish terrorism taking place in, in, in their cities, but this was at a manageable level, particularly after uh, they created a ceasefire. And I'm, I'm short on the exact date of that, but it may have been in the uh, 90s. Um, but there was a negotiated ceasefire with the YPG, the Kurdish, uh, so-called Kurdish radicals, um, where the fighting largely backed off. Um, so Turkey was okay with the way things were working, but in 2003, everything got broken up in Iraq. Um, the United States ended up uh, at first sort of tacitly and later explicitly supporting a uh, independent Kurdistan, largely because they were willing to fight the, initially Saddam and then... Stay out of the fights with the Sunnis and the Shias, um, as well as we see uh, now happily provide the Americans uh, with their enduring uh, bases um, in, uh, in Iraq. There's a lot of uh, happy connections like that, but the problem for Turkey is it has unleashed the Kurds. Um, in fact, it's very directly unleashed them in that the United States has helped transport Kurdish fighters out of uh, Kurdistan. Across uh, northern Iraq and right onto the Turkish border, where they're supposed to only fight ISIS, we we've asked them please to, to only do that, um, and so <laughs> that's pretty good. But I mean, you've actually got those kinds of things happening. Um, if you're a Turkish uh, government and you're seeing that unfold on on your western or your eastern and and to a certain extent your southern border, you're starting to get worried. Mm-hmm. Um, and how looking for
0: well how did this fear that the turkey has of the kurds did this play in in any way to uh, the turkish government shooting down that russian jet i mean why this did they do gets, that
1: well, this one gets complicated and despite my apparent uh, claim to know everything <laughs> uh, i'm going to s- step back uh, a little and say i'm not really sure there's a lot of, of speculation uh, going on everything from sort of just standard saber rattling kind of thing you know you Russians stay over there and make sure you leave us right. alone um, to to more nuanced uh, questions about what the Russians were doing bombing in that area that the area where the Russian uh, plane was shot down is is an Isis controlled uh, area mm-hmm. and Russians have been active uh, bombing up there sure have. Some would, say, some would speculate that those ISIS people were being supported by Turkey. Um, mm-hmm. And that meant that Turkey wanted to warn the Russians off. Mm-hmm. Um, and shooting down this plane um, was their way of saying to the Russians, you back off a couple of notches on all this. Um, I, I would probably lean more towards that theory than, than anything else because it was an incredibly provocative act. Sure. Um, and the Turks knew what they were doing obviously i mean they had video cameras on the ground waiting to capture the whole thing Mm. um it had to be a decision that whatever what that you know the juice was going to be worth the squeeze here um (laughs) so i suspect it was a lot more than just a warning shot or anything along those lines
0: yeah and it it, it's you know the way it's being brought back to us you know americans looking at the mainstream media Turkey is the good guy. Russia is the bad guy. And yet, Turkey is buying ISIS oil, keeping them in business, and Russia's Putin is is fighting them. I mean, ISIS killed some 200 Russian citizens coming back from vacation in the Egyptian resort of uh, Sharm el-Sheikh. Uh, and Putin seems to be going at it on his own. And I wonder... What you make of his approach, might it make more sense than than that of Washington? Again, I don't know if there's any kind of overlapping Venn diagrams here. I'm guessing there's not.
1: Well, I mean, the sense that Putin is killing ISIS people, then I guess that's the, the, the overlap, if you will. You know, if I had to sort of sum up, if if people were interested in sort of Rethinking their thinking about all this vis a vis the mass media in America, it would be something like there really aren't any good guys and there really aren't bad guys. They're all good and they're all bad in very different ways. Uh, and that people should resist what we see in the media um, to kind of paint this in, in, in simple terms. Um, when the Russians first uh, moved into Syria in force, there were a lot of cautious articles uh, in the American media saying that this was a good thing. You know, mm-hmm. now you had uh, the U.S. and Russia reluctantly teaming up for the greater good. Um, and that quickly, very quickly changed into, uh, you know, Putin is, is the devil and, and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not 100 percent certain what the Russians are really after. Mm-hmm. Um at a minimum, and it's not a small minimum, at a minimum, they have uh, reinserted themselves militarily into the Middle East. They have gotten their own uh, enduring bases uh, in Syria. They had, they had a small uh, naval base and a small uh, other facility mm. that had been kind of hanging on for a long time. But now they've got them stocked up. They're uh, flying combat missions. They have uh, the ability to reinforce they can put as many ships and planes and soldiers in the, into Syria as they want. And all of a sudden, you've got a large Russian military force right in the heart of, of the Middle East. Um, and that is not an insignificant accomplishment, um, given mm-hmm. how tightly uh, the Middle East has been at least sort of locked down by the United States militarily. Certainly, I wouldn't say controlled. But the idea of, mm-hmm. of Russians flying uh, you know, combat missions over Syria and and Turkey and and perhaps parts of Iraq um you know a couple of years ago people would think you were absurd
0: yeah well I, I, I maybe it's my obsession with the first world war but i'm reminded of i mean back then 1914 Russia very much wanted to be mm-hmm. a big player on the world stage here we are again
1: it's just and here we are again it's, it's amazing, amazing. The other thing that reminds me or actually scares me when you look back at World War I is that one of the many factors that drove that war to, to begin were what we called then entangling alliances.
0: Right.
1: Um, A supported B, A supported C when C fought B, and so forth. And it created this idea that once the fighting started, there was this enormous momentum that pulled everybody else in um we don't call them entangling alliances anymore but as we've talked about over the last uh, 45 minutes there are enormous numbers of connections between all the players and it's fear i'm fearful that these connections can pull people countries statelets organizations groups Deeper into a conflict that they may not really want to. Uh, imagine, for example, what the United States would be forced to do if if the Turkish Kurdish uh, struggle got big enough that we couldn't pretend it wasn't happening. Um, would America choose a side? Would we try to split the difference? You know, what where would these be? But the short version would be we would get in much deeper than I think anyone would want the, the United States to be in between. Uh, what's essentially a, 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 a regional struggle. Mm. So the parallels to World War One are not insignificant. Yeah. Um, and if I was uh, able to hand a book to uh, Barack Obama, it would be a, a good, uh, easy-to-read history of World War One.
0: Well, and there's a wonderful book I read about the region called A Peace to End All Peace by David Frumpkin talks about the British experience with the breakup of the Ottoman Empire. It's mm. incredible how inept the British were and how they completely <laughs> missed totally missed the real alliances that there were and, and wanted to pick their own leaders and and pretend that they were they really had local support. And of course these leaders got a lot of money, but it was it's a it's almost amusing how the book went. If you just tuned in uh, to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here, our guest today is uh, 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 Peter Van Buren, who has written oh a lot about uh, the uh, situation there. He wrote a book about uh, the uh, State Department Waste and Mismanagement in Iraqi Reconstruction called We Meant Well, How I Helped. Uh, lose the battle for hearts and minds uh, of the Iraqi people. His latest book is uh, Ghosts of Tom Joe, the story of the 99%. Uh, and there's a the whole Sunni Shia stuff, of course, which again is very confusing. General Petraeus led a surge dubbed the Sunni Awakening Movement. What about the idea that the U.S., and again, it sounds like the the settlement of the, of the Ottoman uh, Empire. What about the idea that the U.S. could effectively fulfill its own goals by recruiting local Sunnis to take up arms against ISIS? How did that go?
1: Well, of all the, the absurd things uh, we've discussed today, and I, and the, the ones that I cover in, in even more detail in this uh, Tom Dispatch article, nothing is more absurdier than the idea that we could repeat uh, the surge. I mean, you begin with the idea that the surge itself in the Iraq War was is it largely a myth. At least its outcome, um, as we can remember, back in 2006, Iraq was was engaged in in, in open civil war um, between. And we'll just be yes. kind of broad in saying the Sunnis and the Shias. Yes, yes, yes. There are many subgroups, um, but we'll we'll broadly paint it here uh, for uh, for the time being. Um, the United States, uh, with an enormous amount of money bought off the the Sunni tribes. We also uh, served as their temporary protector uh, against uh, both al-Qaeda and against the the Shia militias. Mm -hmm. Um, And we said, we're going to do this and we're going to transition this all into uh, the control of the uh, Iraqi government. We never really bothered to work that out. Um, We kind of got tired of it all. We started to run out of uh, gas in Iraq. There was a lot of pressure. For the United States to start pulling out, right. and so we dropped it. Uh, the Sunnis uh, instead got eaten up uh, by the Shias. The Iranians uh, helped the Shias uh, assume control uh, of the government and uh, push the the Sunnis off to the side. Um, Al Qaeda didn't come back, um, but ISIS did, yeah. um, mainly as a protector uh, of the Sunnis. To think. That the Sunnis would essentially buy into the same deal that was offered and which failed them in 2006 would require them to be utter idiots. <laughs> uh, I can't. I'm sorry to be kind of crude and rude, um, but in fact, it's almost in, it is impossible to imagine any sentient Sunni leader, uh, perhaps absent a few show uh, show. Sunni right, that right. Uh, you know get paid off um, you know saying yeah you're right the same deal that kind of burned us real bad back then from the same people yeah we're gonna we're gonna accept that deal again we uh we don't believe uh, in that won't get fooled again uh, mm-hmm. uh advice so yeah sure americans we'll kick isis out same way we kicked al-qaeda out um and and that'll work out smoothly um isis however is uh smarter than al-qaeda was um al-qaeda mm. uh Still did a lot of uh, violence against the Sunnis um, and still sort of had its own ambitions. Um, They also plundered uh, a lot of Sunni territory. ISIS, uh, we are told, uh, shares oil revenues uh, with Sunni tribal leaders. Um, They also seem less interested in punishing uh, the Sunnis uh, under their control and seem more interested in creating uh, these looser alliances that we've, Mm. we've been discussing Mm-hmm. So I suspect ISIS has learned a lesson from the surge, uh, same way the Sunnis have. So I'm not uh, counting on on them uh, joining the battle.
0: Well, I'm reminded of the attempt at what was then called Vietnamization, where we wanted the ah. South Vietnamese to to fight our battle. Why would they do that? <laughs> they had no investment in it. We gotta we gotta look at at Iran, the Persians. They're not Arabs at all. The people of oh. Iran are Persians. Uh, in fact. They're supporting the rebels in Yemen who are being attacked by the Saudis. So where does Iran fit in all this? Would it make sense for the U.S. to change course and start working with Iran? It, I have a sense that there might be some uh, uh, some results from that, but we're not going to do I, it. Uh,
1: I just want to circle back to your, your uh, reference to Vietnam Vietnamization, um, Bert, because... Thinking back to our previous conversations um, and knowing the the parallels between Vietnam, I actually had a, a kind of bet with my wife, which of us was going to mention it first, um, and I purposely held off so that I would win the bet with her, knowing <laughs> you would you would bring it up. Um, so, uh, so who won? You know, uh, well, I did because uh, she said I would mention it first, and uh, I'm sorry, I kind of sandbagged you and waited for you to <laughs> say it. So.
0: Well, what can um, we say? We both know our history.
1: I know. Uh, Such a burden. I wish, I wish ignorance was was bliss. And, but okay, back to the back to Iran. Um, first of all, it's so important what you said that the Iranians are not Arabs. Um, I would be terrified to know what percentage of the American oh, population, dear. hopefully not too many people smart enough to listen to to, to your show, hmm. you know, actually think the Iranians are, are Arabs in some way. Um, for the record, they're not. Right. Uh, the, the United States has to deal with Iran one way or the other, sometime or the other. Iran right now is the most powerful strategic player in the Middle East, absent perhaps you know, the United States uh, itself. Um, they are involved in all of these things that annoy the United States in the Middle East. They're supporting the forces that the United States-sponsored Saudis are fighting in Yemen. They are on the side of the Shia government against the Sunnis in Iraq. They are supporting Hezbollah in Lebanon, who's also got its fingers in Syria and remains a a problem for the uh, American-supported Israelis. It's Iran, it's Iran, it's Iran, it's Iran. We know that they are potentially, if not actually a threshold nuclear state, they sit on a what would be a gigantic economy if America uh, loosened the, the sanctions against them. They've got oil, and they are in an extremely strategic position uh, in terms of controlling physically the space uh, of the Gulf. Um, the United States cannot keep pretending Iran doesn't really exist. Yeah. We have to. It was like China during the 1950s, oh. where America... Pretended that this little island of Taiwan represented uh, China and ignored what we called then Red China. Right.
0: Didn't work real well.
1: Did not work real well. I'll just mention that inside the State Department, um, amongst ourselves, we sometimes referred to uh, them as Big China and Little China.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, That's kind of a slang term.
0: Well, just let, let's close up here. Let's say in the uh, Bernie Sanders administration, uh, just ahead of us, <coughs> him, uh, you get appointed Secretary of State. So it's probably a pretty good job. It probably pays pretty well. Uh, mm-hmm. What What would you suggest our policy be realistically the with regard I, to ISIS?
1: First thing I would do is set up my private email server.
0: <laughs> the second
1: thing, the second thing <laughs> I, I would do um, would be to follow what I believe to be President Bernie Sanders' uh, goal, which is to withdraw the United States from these conflicts in Iraq and Syria. And I would work with uh, him and our military and Congress um, to figure out the smoothest glide path to that happening. We're all realists here. We know that the United States just can't pull the plug. That would Spiral the region into even greater chaos, um, we know that we've been meddling there for far too long to just do that, but I think with the understanding that our ultimate goal was to pull everybody out um, and perhaps manage the the crisis from the outside as best we could, as Secretary of State, I would get on I would be on our allies I would be talking to our adversaries, including Iran, mm-hmm. about how to manage that process, and I suspect President Sanders would be working uh, hand-in-glove with me to see that.
0: Well, let's let's hope that happens. People should uh, follow your stuff on TomDispatch.com, I believe it is. Anything else you yes. can point to?
1: Uh, my blog at wementwell.com uh-huh. um, I comment, I write there daily. Um, I reprint all the Tom Dispatch articles if uh, people can't find them on that website. Um, there's a funny piece of satire up just today about the Iraq Syria Lego playset that's uh, today this year's uh, hottest uh, must-have toy um, and of course the uh, you can get the playset and then uh, you can also buy the uh, refugee add-on pack and then the Turkish conflict expansion pack
0: sounds like a real good time happy Christmas thank you so much after uh, you Bert. Peter, thank you Peter van Buren and the people there are saying we won't get fooled again. <laughs> thanks very much for listening we